2: Hello and welcome to Murder Under the Midnight Sun's 4th Anniversary Special. My name is Richard Peters. As you may have noticed, I'm not your regular host, Ari. She is actually very sick and has completely lost her voice and asked me to step in. So, I will be your guest host for this episode. However, this is actually a collaborative episode, so my contribution will be short and sweet. I promise. When Ari first came up with the idea for this show four years ago, she had no idea it would end up reaching millions of listeners in countries all over the world or that she would still be doing it four years later. Ari feels blown away by the wonderful feedback she has received over the years and by all of the amazing people she has met in the podcast community. It has changed her life for the better and she is very grateful to all of you who listen. Whether you have been around since the beginning or if this is your first episode ever, she is especially grateful for all of her wonderful supporters on Patreon. All of you patrons, listeners, friends, and fellow podcast hosts who have been so supportive. And it keeps her going and motivated to want to make each episode the best that it can possibly be. So thank you. Now, to commemorate four years of murder under the midnight sun, Ari asked friends and fellow podcast hosts to contribute their own entries on the theme of the cases that haunt us. There were some excellent submissions from some of your favorite hosts, as well as friends who don't host podcasts, but probably should. Please enjoy this episode. And if you have not checked out the other shows that contributed, please give them a listen as well. Ari will be back with a new episode whenever she can speak above a tiny whisper. So, fingers crossed. And now, on with the show.
0: Hello everyone, this is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. My show has recently passed its five-year anniversary, and given that I've released over 200 episodes and covered so many unsolved cold cases, there are a number of them which have haunted me but the case which has probably haunted me the most is one that is officially considered to be solved, though many people would disagree. I did a two-part episode about it during the early days of the podcast, and I'm talking about the controversial conviction of Tommy Ziegler, who has been on death row for nearly 45 years for a quadruple murder. The crime took place on Christmas Eve in 1975 in the town of Winter Garden, Florida, at the W.T. Ziegler Furniture Store, which was owned by Tommy's family. The victims in question were Tommy's wife, Eunice Ziegler, her parents, Perry and Virginia Edwards, and a regular customer at the store named Charlie Mays. The crime scene could only be described as a massacre, as all the victims were shot to death, and at least 28 shots in total were fired. Tommy Ziegler was also found at the scene with a gunshot wound to his abdomen, and his story is that he had been entering the store in the darkness when he was suddenly attacked by a group of intruders who subsequently beat and shot him Though he wound up surviving. However, the police did not believe Tommy's story and suspected that he committed the murders himself, with the primary motive being to collect an insurance policy he had taken out on his wife. They theorized that Tommy killed Charlie Mays in an attempt to frame him for his murders and that the gunshot wound to his abdomen was self-inflicted in order to make himself look like an innocent victim. But investigators did not buy it so Tommy would be charged with all four murders and after being found guilty at trial, he was sentenced to death. However, if you're wondering why Tommy is still on death row 45 years later without having been executed, well, that's because this is a hugely controversial case and a number of people believe that Tommy was wrongfully convicted. This is undoubtedly one of the most convoluted criminal cases I've ever come across and practically redefines the term rabbit hole. Regardless of whether you believe Tommy is guilty or innocent, There is definitely a lot of reasonable doubt. The problem is that Tommy and a number of key eyewitnesses all have differing accounts of a series of events that unfolded during a period of just over two hours prior to the discovery of the victims' bodies. During my podcast episode, I described this case as an example of the Rashomon Effect, where we have a narrative which is told from separate points of view of multiple people, but in each version, Certain details are drastically different, and often contradict each other. When you hear all these differing stories, you really have a hard time figuring out who's lying, who's telling the truth, or who's simply misremembering things. When you look at all the evidence, it's virtually impossible to come up with a scenario supporting Tommy's innocent or guilt, which makes 100% complete sense. For the past two decades, Tommy's defense team has been lobbying to get advanced DNA testing done on the evidence, as they believe it will finally exonerate him, but the state has continually refused. When I put together my episodes about the case, I consulted with Tommy's defense investigator, Lynn Marie Cardi, who has worked tirelessly for years trying to get him out of prison and uncovered evidence which points to another suspect being the mastermind behind the murders, but his supporters keep running into roadblocks. In 2018, an investigative long-form podcast was produced about this case titled Blood and Truth, and even though it has managed to drum up additional publicity for Tommy's story, new DNA testing is yet to be done. It seems like it seems like Tommy is kind of trapped in limbo, as the as the state is probably never going to execute him because they fear a massive backlash, but they don't want to admit they made a mistake and release him either, which is why they're probably hoping he'll die. Of, which is why they're probably hoping that he'll die of natural causes on death row. You might also be familiar with the Investigate podcast in the dark as their second season covered the controversial conviction of Curtis Flowers, a case which had a number of parallels to this one. Curtis was sent to death row after being convicted of four murders, which took place inside a furniture store in Mississippi, and he would be forced to go through six trials and spend over 20 years on death row before the United States Supreme Court overturned his conviction and he was set free. The murder charges against Curtis have since been dismissed with prejudice, and In the Dark undoubtedly played a huge role in making that happen. At the time of this recording, Tommy Ziegler is 75 years old, so time is running out for him, but even though he became seriously ill for a few weeks after contracting COVID-19 on death row last summer, he managed to pull through and is still with us today. So maybe we can take this as a sign that he will become a free man again someday. Anyway, special thanks to Ariel for inviting me to participate on this episode, and, cra- and congratulations on your four-year anniversary.
1: Hi, I'm Cambo from True Crime Island. Ari, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair, wishing you a happy fourth birthday for your podcast, and hoping you have many more. Now, look, I wouldn't say any one case has stayed with me, as there are so many that are just abhorrent. Probably some of the crimes against children are the ones that are the hardest to research, write and perform. You see, kids are just so vulnerable and it can be a random stranger, a close relative or even a mother or father that can be the perpetrator. I mean, eight-year-old Sophia Shue being literally ripped apart in a shopping centre toilet by Dante Arthur's for his moments of sexual pleasure, or T. Lee Palmer, a 12 year old who was raped by a foster brother and then murdered by the father to try to keep the scandal from getting out. And then I just did the shocking story of Sean Kingy, a 12 year old that was snatched off the streets by a perverted couple, viciously raped, and then murdered. And then, again, there's a case I just did last week of little four-year-old Darcy thrown over the bridge by her father, Arthur Freeman, just to get back at his ex-wife over the custody battle. It's these cases that really show the depravity and vindictiveness of some people. And although these cases some of my listeners choose to skip just because of the nature of the content, I believe their stories need to be told in a caring and sensitive manner. So, Ari, wishing you the best and boomfuckalunga.
3: In my line of work as a true crime producer, you know, on a daily basis, we're looking at different cases for the shows and series we make. Whether it's a case of someone who... we're examining the why and the how of why a crime like that took place in the psychological elements or whether it takes a look at the twists and turns of an investigation or whatever the um, series may be. And one of the very first series that I did um, seven or eight years ago, it, it was the first series, I'm, I'm sorry, focused on minors who commit homicide and since then, there's been two cases that really have stood out to me. Um, kind of have been hard to shake. Um, they turn up in my thoughts uh, once in a while. Uh, the first case is that of uh, Hillary Norskog, and Hillary went uh, to a party. She was uh young. She was um, you know, thirteen, fourteen years old and she lived in a suburb of Chicago. Um, one of the nicer, wealthier suburbs of Chicago. And uh she went to a party with some friends and she didn't uh, come home and her mom called the police. Uh, People were out looking. Um, The last person she'd been seen with was a boy named Stephen File, who was a handful of years older than her um, in high school. And Stephen had been known as a troublemaker. You know, he'd um, had very challenging behavioral issues uh, throughout the years. And they never quite seemed to resolve themselves, uh, no matter what the teachers did. And Stephen's parents were very well off and um, maybe not as hands on as you would think a parent might be. Well, um, Stephen uh, had a car, and you know, in high school someone who has a car. It's a currency. You can get around. You can go do things. You can have a little bit more freedom, a little bit more fun. And, you know, he had offered to give um, Hillary a ride home from the party. And, you know, Hillary never made it home. Um, Stephen was questioned. He claimed that he had dropped her off, and, you know, maybe she'd gone to a girlfriend's house or, you know, something along those lines. So, about a week later, um, Hillary's mom got a call, and they needed her to come down to the police station, not to identify a body, Because the body they had found was so badly decomposed, uh, they could not let her see it. But to identify or give a description of the shoes that Hillary had been wearing the day that she left home. And so um, she went down and that's unfortunately what had happened. Hillary had been found in a field, and with the hot, humid July weather, um, the decomposition had uh, been quite accelerated, and so uh, Hilary's mother wasn't able to identify her daughter in person, but rather uh, by describing the shoes she was wearing. Um, Stephen File, when police went to speak to him again, He had been cleaning out his car. There was a big, dark stain on the passenger side. And he told investigators that that was due to Kool-Aid that had spilled. Um, The investigators were able to take the car in. And it wasn't Kool-Aid. It was uh, blood and it matched Hillary's blood. And so uh, Stephen ends up becoming arrested for Hillary's murder. Of course, his parents are fraught. They say their son had nothing to do with this, that this is some big misunderstanding. And his parents have the money to put up his bail. Um, and it was a significant hefty amount that they paid. Um, And while the weeks and the months drag on, waiting for Stephen's trial for the murder of Hillary Norskog, you know, um, July turns into August, August, September, fall comes and goes, the holidays come and go, and then it's spring, and it is March 17th, Uh, St. Patrick's Day, and Mr. and Mrs. File decide to go and spend St. Patrick's Day having a little bit of a party with uh, friends and family. And they leave uh, Stephen and his brother and sister at home while they go off to have some beers. And they get a call um, from the mayor of the town. That they're staying in and they are stunned because Stephen had been driving around for hours with tons of weapons, tons of ammo in his car, crossbows, just a very um, tense situation. Very frightening to think of a teenager with this amount of weaponry on him. And he um, admitted to an absolutely horrifying crime. Um, Back at the file residence, his brother was found bludgeoned and um, his sister had been assaulted. And Stephen um, confessed to... Murdering Hillary to murdering his own brother, and then he had assaulted his sister and The case haunts me because I feel like there were so many ways that this case could have really been avoided, especially with the bail and I know that's a hot topic right now, but when Stephen was out on bail. His parents really didn't enforce any kind of strict rules or oversight. Stephen was allowed to continue smoking pot, drinking. Um, Stephen had a hunting knife that they had given him. Stephen had this long history of challenging behavior, um, bullying kids on the school bus, um, And his parents always took the stance of boys will be boys, which is a really dangerous uh, stance to take when you have um, kids being uh, brutalized physically and verbally by your child. And um, he'd also tortured animals. He'd uh, really, really shown very clear signs of being disturbed and needing uh, help And you pair that with a lack of oversight and it was just a recipe for disaster. And that's what that case was, just totally disastrous, totally um, horrifying and frightening and scary and so challenging to understand how a... A uh, teenager, a child, could have done that. The other case that has always stuck with me is um, the murder of Kimmy Dots. Kimmy was a beautiful, delightful um, teenage girl. She had a little bit of um, challenges with learning. She uh, didn't learn at the same Rate her classmates did, um, but she was sweet and fun-loving and happy-go-lucky, and she really wanted to have friends. And I mean, who doesn't at that age? I mean, who de- Everyone wants friends at any age, and um, you know, uh, Kimmy got invited to come to a slumber party. And uh, she goes to the slumber party and doesn't come home. Um, You know, the kids that were at the slumber party talked about, you know, they'd um, gone out that evening and Kimmy had been with them and that she'd been with them the whole time. And, you know, they acted very concerned, very concerned for Kimmy's safety Um, The town had, they had um, gone ahead and began doing searches for Kimmy and, you know, when they were out and about, they could smell something and they weren't sure if the scent was from a deer that might be decomposing. They lived very, in a really nice rural area. Um, or if it was something else, and unfortunately, that was actually Kimmy, and Kimmy had been um, found hanging from a tree in the forest in the nearby forest, and so the people, the kids, the group of kids she'd spent the last evening with, um, got brought in, and the story they tell the investigators is just so devastating Um, they lead um, the lead kind of ringleader Jessica she had you know gotten them out there and then got Kimmy to put this noose around her neck and she had convinced the kids to take turns stringing her up, and had acted like this was some kind of game, some kind of lark. Of course, Kimmy was terrified and scared, and, um, you know, when you're hanging up there, you can't fight back, you can't do much, and it was just this horrifying intersection of kind of a group mentality with a bullying, bossy leader and this sweet, fragile girl who just wanted to have friends and wanted to go to a slumber party and um, watch a scary movie. And it's just a really sickening kind of crime to me because, again, I think it was so avoidable and preventable and there were so many ways that this could have been stopped. And so, um you know, I think about these cases frequently, you know, they come into my thoughts and I think about the justice system and I think about how the justice system interacts with us in a real world, real life way and um, you know it's just there were so many ways that these cases and these tragedies could have been prevented and so many ways in which these uh, didn't need to um, didn't need to take take place, so oh boy, these are <laughs> these two cases are gonna linger with me now. It's been a while since I had to talk about them. But uh Kimmy e. Dots and Hilary norskog have lived with me for a while in my mind.
4: The case that I can't let go of. Hello, I'm Oud from Occulte Veritatis Podcast. If you like the way I talk, come hear more of it along with a few other co-hosts of mine, ovpod.ca. But the case I can't let go of is Jody Arias, strangely enough. Now, I don't think this story has any quote-unquote heroes in it. Even Prosecutor Martinez, later on, was found out to have been doing some moral activities Yet, I keep on going back to this case. Watching the interrogations. Seeing the story change from the first to the second and on. Seeing Jody's story evolve as it goes on and on. Most people that follow this pattern that have these changing stories and end up interrogated and in a courtroom and have their cross-examinations and etc. filmed, usually they aren't good at adapting to changing conditions, Usually, the new versions of the stories become less and less thought-out as they compensate. And it's a bit different with the Jodi Arias case. Now, I think she did many unwise things to expose what she did, and I do think she murdered Travis Alexander, unjustifiably. So that is my bias. But she seems to be very quick in thought, quick to adapt. Maybe not 100% right in a legal sense, I can see how a lawyer and somebody versed in cross-examination and exposing like a client's lies as you're cross-examining them, I can see how a lawyer might not find it as impressive, but in terms of the perception of the people watching, and just a regular dude like me that never went to law school, it always seems like a verbal jousting match between Jodi Arias and the prosecutor. and. And often uh, the cross-examinations and questionings get combative with everybody that the prosecutor interviews. And I've watched that entire trial, it's all on YouTube, uh, a few times now. I've had a few jobs where I can just listen on end to audio as I work, and uh, that's one of the things that has kept me entertained through many, many hours of work is listening to that trial. You know, I I like certain movies that are like that too. The Man from Earth is one of them. It's a bunch of people sitting in the cabin, debating, and having an interesting conversation. That's the whole base of the movie. Another favorite of mine is 12 Angry Men, where 12 jurors argue about the innocence or guilt of the person that they watched in court for many, many hours. That type of intrigue, that kind of like verbal jousting, verbal chess, like arguing between two people who really know how to talk and... Are probably pretty good at manipulating themselves. Seeing them combat is always very interesting to me, and I think that's what attracts me to the Jody Arias case. That's what the one I can't let go of that I keep on watching. I think I find that verbal battle between those two people and the prosecutor and everyone involved pretty much um very interesting. I'm also like personally inter- interested in uh different sorts of communication methods like teaching people effectively, um, rhetoric, um, presenting an idea in a way that will capture people's attention, things like that, and, like, I gain a lot of those perspectives from this trial, because it all informs those, because the whole trial you're watching, it's not necessarily about who's been proven right, it's, that intrigues me. Of course, I think Jody is guilty as sin, but what intrigues me is just the performance of it that's why i keep on going back to it i find that kind of verbal battle very interesting anyways that's it for me back to you
5: well hello everybody my name is lisa cisneros and i'm so happy to be contributing to this very special episode of uh, murder under the midnight sun the cases that haunt us So uh, real quick about me, I'm a reporter, writer, and filmmaker based in Chicago. I make up one-third of the team at Rhodes Closed Productions with my partners, Danny Rhodes and Teresa Schaefer. And I clearly also have a strong interest in true crime as well, or I wouldn't be contributing to this podcast. So, um, as I've grown older, I've noticed, however, that uh, my interest in true crime, my focal point, um, has really been leaning more towards uh, missing persons cases. So, when I was asked if I wanted to participate for this episode, I immediately knew that I wanted to cover the missing persons case of Amy Lynn Bradley, because I can't think of another... Of it I can't think of it oh, there's my dog, sorry. <laughs> I can't think of an unsolved crime that haunts me more. I've shed tears over it. It's kept me up some nights, honest to God. Um, you know as I'm sure it has for some of you listeners as well. If you haven't heard of Amy Bradley's case before, get comfortable and hold on because this is a it's a doozy man. Um, if you have heard of her case before, I hope that I'm bringing you some information, some new information to the table, you know that you might not have heard before. So um, first, we're going to go into the details, uh, then we're going to briefly discuss why I feel her case resonates with so many people. Um, Amy's case is both particularly special and particularly distressing, and after listening, I think you'll see why. So here we go. So Amy Lynn Bradley was born May 12, 1974, in Petersburg, Virginia, to Ron and Iva Bradley. Um, She was then followed by her younger brother, Brad, two years later. Um, And by all accounts, they are a happy, loving, close-knit family, and Amy and Brad are like practically best friends. Um, And yes, his name is Brad Bradley, which I think is oddly adorable, but anyhow... Um, like I said so they're like best friends uh, growing up Amy is like super outgoing she's fun she's a natural athlete um, in high school she letters in five sports she's the captain of her swim team she works as a lifeguard for a little bit and she excels in basketball so when it's time for her to attend college she receives like basketball scholarship offers from all over the place but she chooses to stay close to home and she attends Longwood University So in 1998, this is where the story really begins. In 1998, Amy graduates with a degree in physical education and the world is like her oyster, right? Life is good. It's only beginning. She finds a job that she's going to start in a few weeks. She gets her own apartment and she um, she adopts a puppy. She adopts this English bulldog that her brother said that she's always wanted. Um, So she also makes plans at the time to attend graduate school as well. She's going to earn her master's in sports psychology. So she's got a lot on her plate, but, you know, things are great. So around the same time, Amy's father, Ron, wins a trip from his employer for a seven-day Royal Caribbean cruise. And he and Iva cannot wait to share this with their kids. They're super excited. Um, Amy's 23, Brad is 21, and Ron and Iva look at this cruise as an opportunity to take, you know, one more awesome family vacation before their kids completely leave the nest. Um, So Brad, he's really excited. He's on board right away. Uh, but, you know, oddly enough, when they're talking about this vacation and planning, Amy doesn't want to go. Um, she's very hesitant to go. I figured it was just because, you know, she had so much on her plate at the time. But, no, turns out, um, even though Amy was an accomplished swimmer, she wasn't comfortable being on a huge ship in the middle of vast open water. Something about that just really frightened her, um, made her uncomfortable. And, you know, now in hindsight... Did she also have some weird premonition that something was going to go wrong? You know, I mean, was was that kind of holding her back? Or um, And even if she did, there's no way that she could have ever suspected, like, just how wrong things would go for her. There's no way. I mean, obviously, like, she wouldn't have gone on the, on the freaking ship. So, anyway, Amy's family convinces her there's nothing to worry about, and she finally agrees to go, and she's happy about it. You know, she's legitimately happy. So March 21st, 1998, the family boards the 1,000-foot cruise liner Rhapsody of the Seas with 2,000 other people in San Juan, Puerto Rico. So sadly, Iva would later say that she remembers boarding the ship and just looking at her beautiful family and thinking how special it was that they all got to have this time together. You know, just little did she know. So now it's only the second day of the cruise, but so far everything's been going pretty well. They're docked in Oranestad, Aruba, which is a Dutch Caribbean island, and they're exploring, they're shopping, they're having the best time. Um, oh, also real quick, if Oranestad, I hope I'm not butchering the name of the the place, but um, if Oranestad sounds familiar, that would be because that's where Natalie Holloway was last seen alive in 2005, okay? So now you know. Um, but anyhow... Uh, It's March 23rd, second day of the cruise, family comes back from exploring on the island all day and they get all decked out for this fancy formal dinner that's on the ship. Um, They're in formal wear, their hair is done, their makeup is done, they look fantastic and they take several photographs of themselves as a family but they're also photographed several times by the ship photographers which is standard. Um, they, they photograph all of the passengers and then they show the photos through the crews and they make them available for purchase and, you know, it's, it's what they do. But this is important to remember. Several photos were taken of Amy and her family. So now at this point, you know, the family hasn't necessarily noticed anything weird on their trip. But looking back, they would say later that they realized that, it seems like this day in particular, not maybe the first day, but the second day, it seemed like some of the crew had paid particular attention to Amy. Um, they chatted her up a little bit more than the others, and then even while they were at this formal dinner, Ron would later say that one of the waiters came up to him and asked if Amy would like to accompany him and some friends or some of the crew to the local Carlos and Charlies like on the island. Carlos and Charlie's is a popular Mexican restaurant and bar chain. Um, but yeah, like she's going to go with these strangers off ship and go to a bar when she's got like whatever she could possibly want her to eat or drink on the ship. Um, yeah. Oh, also, if Carlos and Charlie's in Aruba sounds familiar, that's because it's the same Carlos, same, same Carlos and Charlie's where Natalie Holloway was last seen alive. Hmm. So, you know, the waiter's request is freaking wildly inappropriate, okay? Staff and crew are not supposed to fraternize with the guests, like, ever. So, and apparently when Ron mentioned this to Amy that they were asking if she wanted to go drinking with them off ship, she was like, oh, hell no. You know, I wouldn't go anywhere with them. They'd give me the creeps. So, and rightly so, but so if they were forward enough with her for her to be creeped out, then the crew was definitely being overly friendly. Like, it wasn't in their imagination if she was immediately creeped out so now the family's finished dinner and they change into more comfortable clothes and they head to a calypso party on the ship Um, they dance they drink and brad even wins a limbo contest Um, and meanwhile while the family's partying at this calypso party uh, the ship is taking off for its next port which is curacao um, which is also a dutch caribbean island so um ship takes off. It's about 1 a.m. Iva and Ron are just like done for the day. They go to bed and Amy and Brad um, decide they're going to stay out. They're 23 and 21. So they go to the ship's nightclub where the house band Blue Orchid is playing. And they dance their faces off and they have the best time. So like 4 a.m., Brad heads back up to the family cabin. And Amy follows about 4.30 um, so 4 30 for sure like Amy and Brad are sitting on the deck of their cabin together. Um, they're sitting outside They're just chatting about their plans for later in the morning. Nothing special um, But Brad decides that he's gonna call it a night as they still have like a full day that's starting in like two hours and uh, Amy says she's gonna hang outside a little while longer. She's wide awake. She might have a cigarette Um, she was a smoker a cigarette smoker um, so Brad and Amy tell one another good night and they say I love you and this is the last time Amy it's the last time Amy will have any interaction with her family ever again. So it's about an hour later. Um, it is the morning of March 24th. It's about 5:30 a.m, and Ron wakes up. So he looks out the cabin windows to the deck and he sees that Amy is resting outside, and he sees that Brad is back in, in his bed in the cabin. and he goes back to sleep. Ron goes back to sleep. Probably figures, you know, kids are back, life is good i'm gonna go back to sleep you know a little bit before breakfast so then he said about 20 minutes half hour later um he woke up again and something caused him to to wake up but he, he couldn't put his finger on what it was so maybe he heard something maybe he heard amy leaving who knows but he wakes up he looks outside and he sees that amy is gone um And now he said he didn't really worry at first because he thought that she... He thought maybe she had gone up to the upper deck to take some photos because she mentioned to him earlier in the evening that she might do that in the morning. Um, So Ron heads to the upper deck and there's still no Amy. So now he does start to get a little panicky, even though he couldn't possibly be sure that something's really wrong yet. But he begins searching the ship. So... I'm just going to add my two cents here because I'm a parent and this is what I think may have been going on in Ron's head. So even, like, even if he didn't inherently think that anything was actually wrong yet, when you're a parent and you expect to see your child somewhere and your child is not in the location that you expected them to be, you immediately get a little panicky even when you know your child is safe. You can't help it. So if me personally, I live in a small single level condo. There's not a lot of places my kid can go. But if I think my son is in a certain room and he's not, and then I go to another room and he's not there either. And then I go to the bathroom and he's not there. And I'm like, well, where the hell is he? I know he's in the house. There's only one way out. But then I'll find him in the laundry room, like grabbing a bag of chips. And I'm literally so relieved. Like, Oh, I, I! what were you doing? I couldn't find you, you know? And there's literally like eight places the kid could be. So I gather that the more that Ron searched on that enormous ship, you know, the panic is just building and building and building. And, you know, then you throw into the mix also that it was highly unlikely that Amy was just going to take off for an hour, you know, when she knew that her family had morning plans. So it's like 7 a.m. now and Ron... He's, w- he's woken up, Iva and Brad, and he tells them he can't find Amy anywhere. And Iva says Ron's face is, you know, oh, and Brad was like, well, maybe she went to buy cigarettes. I don't know. But Ron is flipping out. And Iva said Ron's face is just gray and he looks ill. And now they all have this feeling that, like, something is definitely up. Amy has allegedly taken with her her cigarettes, lighter, camera, and room key... But apparently nothing else. And some of that is debatable, but to my knowledge, it seems that that was pretty accurate, that she did have those things with her. Um, Excuse me. There's also debate over whether Amy was wearing shoes at the time. Some reports say yes, some say no. But really, at the end of the day, whether she has shoes or not, like Amy's vanished. So about this time, the ship is ready to dock in Curacao, and the family runs to the captain, who, funny enough, his name, I couldn't find it anywhere. Couldn't find it. So, but anyway, they beg him, please, please do not let anyone off this ship. Our daughter's missing. Will you please begin searching the ship? Make some announcements, pass out her photo, etc. And the captain refuses. He says he doesn't want to alarm the other passengers and he can't stop the boat from docking or the other passengers from leaving. He says that what he will do is gather his security team to begin a search and have the crew make an announcement asking Amy to come to the front of the ship. Okay, which is clearly not going to do any good if she's being held captive, idiot. Like, where, yeah, Amy Bradley, come to the front of the ship. Um, So as the crew makes their, you know, BS announcement asking Amy to come to them, the boat docks and 2,000 people Who could have aided in the search for Amy, leave the boat for the day, none the wiser. (laughs) Oh. So, real quick, two things here. One, had the crew made the announcement that Amy was missing, she was actually pretty recognizable, okay? She had very short brown hair, green eyes, she was 5'6, she was very fit, she was in good shape. Um, But her face is distinctive, too. She had like a smaller nose, smaller mouth, thinner lips, um, and she had earrings. She had earrings that lined her entire left ear and several distinct tattoos. Um, Oh, she also had a belly button piercing, but her tattoos, listen to these, okay? She had a Tasmanian devil spinning a basketball on one shoulder, she had the sun on her lower back, a Chinese symbol on her right ankle, and then a gecko on her stomach. Um, So she's got several identifying marks and it's not like she's, you know, going to be not easy to spot. So two, I've often wondered if Amy was able to hear the announcement asking her to come to the front of the ship. And if she was able to hear it, what was she thinking? Like, was she hopeful? Did she know her family was looking for her right away? And like, did that give her... A sense of safety or was it even worse because she was like overcome with all this grief knowing that her family was so close by but they couldn't save her you know or was she just drugged unconscious completely unaware that they were even searching for her in the first place Um, but I think about that a lot so now it's 5 p.m. okay so we we're starting at like 7 a.m. right or 6 a.m. when Amy first goes missing it's now 5 p.m. And the family's been asking around and searching the boat themselves for 10 hours. The captain tells them that his security has searched every nook and cranny of the ship and Amy is nowhere to be found. (sighs) Also, at this time, the captain and crew start throwing out their own ideas of what they think might have happened to Amy. So right away they go to like, maybe she just fell overboard. She was drinking right Well, a couple things. It's highly unlikely because, one, the railings on cruise ships are high. They're quite high. They're like four feet high at least to specifically prevent this. Two, Amy was afraid of getting too close to the railing. She wouldn't go near it unless she was with her family because she was afraid of the water. And um, and three if she did fall over the water was calm that day she was an accomplished swimmer um remember it was morning so it wasn't like people weren't out and about and they were so close to shore like they were about to dock so she could have literally like swam to shore um anyhow but then some of the crew they also excuse me they also allegedly suggested that amy might have committed suicide like, really? Like, on yeah, my family vacation? I mean, I, I'm not saying... And I'm not joking about suicide, so don't even think that I'm doing that. And, and I'm not saying that people... It's not possible that someone would commit suicide on a family vacation. But, I mean, that's a freaking jump to conclusions if I ever heard one. You know, she had nothing but wonderful things waiting for her when she got home. So then, another crew member makes the more logical suggestion, even though it really doesn't fit with you know Amy's personality... But they make the suggestion that suggestion that maybe Amy just left the ship on her own, and the family should also leave the ship and look for her themselves on the island uh, they know Amy, you know actually, now that I think about it in retrospect, I'm really kind of shocked. well, no, okay, I get it. No, why they got off the boat, but anyway, so I had to think about it for a second, but they know Amy didn't get off this ship by herself, but anyhow, they're hesitant, Amy's family's hesitant to leave the boat, but the crew is sort of, like, pushing them, like, hey, if you stay on the ship and she's on the island, like, we won't be able to bring you back and let you off to search. So, you know, in hindsight, there were three family members in the morning when they discovered that she was missing, like one of them should have probably gotten off the boat, searched the island. One should have stood at like the dock and questioned people. And then the other one maybe searched the boat. You know, I don't know. But who can think straight at a time like that? I mean, I couldn't. I've been following this case for years and I'm, you know, things are just popping up as I'm talking about it. So it's 5.30 and the Bradleys exit the ship to search the island, knowing that at 9 p.m. the ship is going to leave again for its next port. So the family contacts the local authorities, but they can't help them. Then they, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, the local authorities can't help them. They try to contact the U.S. Embassy, but it's closed for the day. So then they contact the FBI, but it's going to be at least a full 24 hours before they can reach the island. So, you know, now what? What the hell are they supposed to do? So, feeling confident that the ship was thoroughly searched, the family makes the heartbreaking decision to stay on the island and wait for the FBI as the ship sails away so uh, and Ron Bradley actually mentioned something about like as they were watching the ship sailing away all these lights were on everywhere except for their room like their room was the, the dark room on the ship sailing away Ugh, like a black hole so anyway it's like two days later now okay and the family has been searching the island themselves and the FBI has started their own investigation Then, though, the FBI, they contact the Bradleys at their hotel in Curacao and they tell them that they should have never left the boat. They've been in contact with the ship and it turns out that a thorough search was not conducted. In fact, the ship was barely searched at all. The only areas these mother effers, (laughs) the only areas that were searched on the entire ship were the public bathrooms and common areas. That's it. That's it. Like the mother's heart in me is like literally fuming as I even speak these words. I literally might have had a mental breakdown right then and there. Wow. So now they're literally, they're on like their third day and they're back to square one. And so now the Bradleys, along with the FBI, fly to St. Thomas to get back on the ship at its next port. Okay. So one thing I want to just go over real quick is why it was difficult you know why it's so difficult to get crimes solved on cruise ships and why it was so difficult for amy's family to get a proper search and investigation going on the ship as soon as they knew amy was missing okay so she's an american citizen and she's traveling on a ship which is owned by um what are now called royal caribbean international but that company is based in florida <clears throat> okay they the company is in the u.s but international waters are tricky and ships have to follow the maritime laws of the countries that the, the ship is actually registered in. So "Rhapsody of the Seas," go figure, just happens to be registered in the country of Norway. So they're under like Norway law. There are loopholes, though, if the ship, um, if the ship had been under, excuse me, been within 12 nautical miles of Curaçao at the time of Amy's disappearance then her case would have fallen under the jurisdiction of Curacao uh, Police. But it wasn't. They were outside that 12-mile marker. So, I mean, what are the Bradley supposed to do? Contact the Norway police, you know? So, now the family is back on the ship and the captain and crew are literally giving the FBI hassle about coming on board to investigate, even though they do have permission from Royal Caribbean International. Because, hey, maritime law says that they can give them hassle. Whatever. So, this is until Iva basically gets in the captain's face and says in no uncertain terms, you know, you out and out lied to us and you were going to let the FBI on this ship. So, dirty bastards finally relent. And I say dirty bastards because they really, really are. (laughs) You know, at the end of the day, they are. Um, And also, I mean, if you're not hiding something, what's the big deal with the search? If I was on a cruise... And the crew asked me to keep an eye out for a missing passenger or questioned me about a missing passenger. What the hell do I care? I'm not missing. My family member's not missing. We're fine. What's the big deal answering a few questions if it helps someone? So anyhow, the FBI officially start their search and they begin passing out Amy's photo and they get their first lead. Two young women come running up. Oh, that's another thing. You're going to hear me say lead like a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) So two young women come running up to the Bradleys and they tell them that they saw Amy the morning of her disappearance with a member of the house band, the bass player, a Grenadian man named Alistair Douglas who goes by the nickname Yellow. At about 5.45 a.m., they saw Amy and Yellow enter the dance club and while they were there, they saw him hand her a dark colored drink, which could have been perhaps a coffee or a soda, maybe a little splash of hypno, huh? So other witnesses would also say that a few minutes after this, that they saw yellow hand Amy the drink, they saw them together on the upper deck where Amy was indeed taking photographs like her father had thought she would. Okay, so she was there at some point. Maybe her dad just missed her. Ugh. So, then more witnesses come forward as well, and they say that they saw Amy and Yellow go to the upper deck together on the ship's large glass elevator, which is kind of like in the middle of the ship, Um, but that Yellow was seen leaving the upper deck on the elevator alone. So, then all of this info prompts Brad to remember that he, okay, he remembers Amy dancing with Yellow the night before her disappearance. Um, But then there's something else too. He also remembers an encounter he had with Yellow in the early morning hours of her disappearance, when he came up to Brad and said, sorry to hear about your sister, which was unusual because at the time, the only people on the ship who knew Amy was missing besides her family were the captain and ship security. So Yellow would later say that a crew member came to his room and woke him up to ask about Amy because they knew they'd been dancing with her but the ship wasn't even looking for Amy until almost 730. And this like exchange happened about this encounter happened about 630. And how would these people no one knows what Amy looks like like they're how are they going to know that this is I don't know. Anyhow, whatever. So the family reports this to the FBI and yellow is brought in for questioning and given a lie detector test. Obviously, he says he has nothing to do with Amy's disappearance. Yes, he did dance with her, but they parted ways. He's sure they parted ways at 1 a.m., and he didn't see her again until the morning when they, like, chatted a bit, and then he left her on her own. So I haven't really been able to find a straight answer on whether Yellow passed his lie detector test or not um, or if it was deemed inconclusive. Most information leans towards that it was inconclusive, but either way, you know, either way, there was not enough evidence to detain him. So the FBI had to let him go. And one thing we do know for sure is that, according to Amy's father, when Yellow exited his FBI interview, he came out with a huge smile on his face and was giving a freaking thumbs up. So, another person, like, anyway, another person who was interviewed was the waiter who asked if Amy wanted to accompany him and the, his friends to the local Carlos and Charlie's in Aruba. So while he's being questioned, he of course also denies knowing anything about Amy's disappearance. But he also allegedly told police that Iva Bradley had questioned him about procedures when someone falls overboard on the ship, as though he was trying to implicate Iva in Amy's disappearance. So, yeah, and you can, well, I'll get to this later, but Iva said that this conversation never took place and asked that the waiter be given a lie detector test, but for some reason, one was never administered, and I'm just assuming it was because they really had like no concrete evidence against him. I mean, it's not illegal to ask somebody to go to a bar, right? Um, and they can't force him to take a lie detector test. I mean, he's not charged with anything. So, then if all this crap isn't like strange enough, the FBI also discovers that all of the photos that the ship's photographer had taken of Amy have somehow been mysteriously deleted, they're gone. I'm assuming whomever did this uh, did it so that Amy's photo, one, couldn't easily be shown to the passengers who had been looking for, who would be asked to look for her, Um, but then also I'm thinking perhaps there's an incriminating photo, um, one of Amy and her family, where like a crew member has their eyes on Amy, like lurking from behind or something, but at any rate, Amy is the only passenger on the ship whose photos are missing, okay? She's the only one. But the FBI cannot determine who deleted the photos or how it happened. And seriously, I mean, at this point, it's like, call the whole crew and any employee on the ship guilty. You know, I mean, they're telling the family to get off the ship. They're suggesting suicide. Her photos are missing. The staff is paying extra extra close attention. The waiter asks if she wants to go frickin' bar hopping. And then she's last seen with an employee. It's clear as day that this is a cover-up. But there's still not enough evidence to charge anyone with a grime. Ah! So also, while all of this is going on, there's a five-day um, Coast Guard search of the water, but it turns up nothing. And now Amy's family is feeling pretty confident that she was, like, they're feeling confident that she was 100% abducted. Um, to top this off, the Bradleys also learned that maritime pirates had been seen in the waters near Curacao When Amy disappeared and also that prostitution is legal on all islands in the Dutch Caribbean making it an area ripe for human trafficking awesome so there's one more piece of evidence that I want to mention here real quick before we move on and stay with me guys I'm sorry I know it's a long one but really it's like only just scratch on the surface okay so the the little piece of evidence that I want to mention is a videotape um this part got a little confusing to me because during all of my i I found a lot of conflicting information while i was doing my research but the best that i could make of it was that during the initial investigation a man who was filming a promotional video for the ship came forward to ship security and was like hey i have hours and hours of footage that missing girl must be in some of it it might be beneficial to review it in case it gives any clues about her disappearance So he turns a copy of the tape over to ship security. And after reviewing it, they tell him that they want the originals for the FBI. And the dude is like, well, then the FBI, when they ask for the originals, I'll hand them over. But I'm not going to, you know, who the hell are you? I'm not going to give you my tapes. Well, anyway, FBI never asks for them. I don't even know if they, I, I don't know if they watched edited copies or if they didn't see the tapes at all. But it appears that for sure, though, these original tapes were not viewed by the FBI until several years later. Some reports even say 20. So by all accounts, it appears that however many years went by, these original tapes were not made available during the initial investigation. And you know what's all over these tapes Amy in yellow dancing the night away until after 3 a.m., like close to 4, when he told the FBI that he was sure that he had last seen Amy at 1 a.m. <sighs> so, March 28th, the ship docks for the last time, and that's it. No Amy anywhere, the Bradleys' head home empty-handed, but they are fighters, and they immediately hit the ground running as soon as they get home, they are getting the word out nationally about Amy's disappearance. They're in the paper, they're all over TV. They announce a $200,000 reward for her safe return. And um, then a few weeks later, on April 21st, Brad and Ron will make a return trip to Curaçao to look for Amy again. Um, they hand out flyers, they rent a car, they drive all over the island searching. And while they're handing out flyers a cab driver comes up to them and tells them that he saw Amy the morning that she disappeared he said she ran up to his cab minutes after the ship docked and asked him where the public telephone was before running off remember this is 1998 so it's not like everyone has a cell phone he also said that he remembered distinctly that she had green eyes which of course Amy does so great news right this gives Ron and Brad hope that Amy is still in the area Then, four days into the search, while they're driving, Brad swears that he hears Amy call his name from a passing van. So, he and his father (laughs) whip the car around and chase it. They chase it down side streets, through huts. Um, It's a full-on chase. When they finally catch up to the van and search, though, it's just a single man and there's no sign of Amy. So, did they chase after the wrong vehicle or did Brad just hear what he wanted to hear? You know, so... Anyhow, after a week of exhaustive searching with no luck, they decide to return home. And then, um, you know, they don't hear anything until like 14 months later. But 14 months later, another lead comes in. Okay, it's a. Excuse me. It's May of 1999, and a Canadian man named David Carmichael is watching America's Most Wanted, and a clip about Amy's disappearance pops up, and he immediately calls the Bradleys and tells them that one. He has no interest in their reward money and two he saw amy while he was scuba diving in curacao five months after amy's disappearance so he says that while he was on the beach cleaning his equipment he saw a young woman matching amy's description walking down the beach with two men carmichael said that when the woman heard so he was with some friends right so when he uh the woman heard that he and his friends were speaking english she picked up the pace and started coming towards him only to be whisked away by the two men before she could speak and pulled into a cafe. So for whatever reason, Carmichael follows them, okay? And I'm just going to interject real quick here, you guys. I'm, I'm working from home. I'm not a professional podcaster. I have a dog, and I live right by O'Hare Airport, and it seems like there's a lot of background noise going on right now. So my apologies. Please ignore it if if you're hearing anything. Anyhow, so Carmichael follows them, okay? They're at the cafe, Uh, He says that the woman seemed to really make an effort to show off her tattoos, one of which was a Tasmanian devil on her shoulder. So he's like 100% sure that it's her. So the Bradleys contact the local authorities and they go and conduct a search in the area. But again, no sign of Amy. So then three months later, though, they get another lead. This time it's from a local Curacao woman by the name of Judith Margarita. It's either Margarita or Margarita. And she tells the family that she's seen Amy out and about on the island okay like for example at the local grocery store um, and she's regularly accompanied by a man with long hair and tattoos long blonde hair and tattoos okay so Judas says that she has knowledge that when not accompanied um, Amy is being held in a barbed wire complex surrounded by armed guards uh, she describes Amy's tattoos and she also references a lullaby that Iva used to sing to Amy, which is freaking weird because how in the hell would she know that? Um, like, did she hang out with Amy? Did someone on the inside tell her that like Amy would sing herself to sleep? Um, was it the freaking mockingbird song and she just took a guess? I don't know. You know, like everyone, oh, she's to sing to me. You know, it was never, I couldn't find an explanation, but you know, way to tug at a mother's heart streams there. So, She says that she sees Amy and she knows she's being held by these armed guards. Um, About that same time that they get this tip, a man by the name of Frank Jones comes forward and says that he's a private investigator and former military special forces. And that after Carmichael's sighting and what Judith, Judith said, he's convinced that Amy for sure has been abducted by sex traffickers and forced into sexual slavery. Now, also, if Judith is telling the truth and he can verify that Amy is alive, he is sure that he can save her, okay? It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of money, but he's got a great team of recon men and he knows that they can do it. Um, So at this point, Jones appears like more than credible. So the Bradleys move forward. They collect some of their own money as well as donated money um, and money from missing persons organizations uh, and they pay Jones. They begin to pay Jones and his team and they're off to Carousel. So Jones, he reports back that he set up several, excuse me, set up surveillance where Judith says she saw Amy and that he has seen Amy with the man with the long blonde hair and they're driving around in, in uh, a green SUV. Okay. So shortly after that though, he says he and his men have to leave the island for a little bit because they got too close and this altercation took place and they were shot at. But over the next few months, Jones sends another team over and he keeps the Bradleys up to date on Amy's whereabouts. So next, he tells the Bradleys now that it's time for the rescue and they need to send more money, which they do because this time Jones sends actual photos of Amy accompanied by the man with the blonde hair. Um, sends these photo- photos to the Bradleys. You can't see Amy's face, but she has the same bill. She's the same height and the tattoos that are visible in the photos are a direct match to Amy's. So, Jones tells the Bradleys they're going to fly to Miami and wait for his phone call, and they have to have a private jet ready to depart as soon as he gets Amy to them. So, Ron Bradley's um, boss helps them out, uh, helps them get the jet. I don't, I think he was in insurance or whatever, but this, the guy clearly made some money. So, um, the boss, I'm saying, because he actually helps the Bradleys a lot. But So, he sends over a plane, and the Bradleys are in Florida for a week, but no phone call ever comes. So, I mean, they're brokenhearted. Like, they're expecting the day that they kept there that, you know, Amy's going to be ready and they're ready to take her home. Iva even set up doctor's appointments for Amy for when she got back. But, obviously, you know, that never, that never comes. Also, around this same time, um, a man named Tim Buckles gets involved. And I'm throwing him in here because he's very important to the case. But the facts surrounding how he got involved are a little confusing, um, but the end result is the same. So I've read in reputable articles that Buckles was already working with Jones as one of his men, but I also read that Ron's employer hired Buckles independently to go to Curaçao and to investigate Jones and make sure that you know he was doing what he said that he was doing. Either way, this you know this botched um, rescue happens. Iva and Ron are devastated, and now this Buckles, um, Tim Tim Buckles, he's a recon man, okay? He's eventually going to become a private investigator, and while he's in Curaçao, he discovers that Jones is completely full of shit. So he contacts the Bradleys and tells them, like, Jones is not investigating Amy's disappearance at all. At all. He never has been, and he's been living it up in Curaçao on the Bradleys' dime, and donation money, drinking, you know, monkey rum punches. And uh, he also discovers Jones is not a formal special forces or even a private investigator. He is a professional con man. And the photos that were allegedly of Amy had been staged using a woman who resembles Amy and a male friend in a blonde wig. Jones took photos of Amy's tattoos that the Bradleys provided to him. He took them to a local artist and then he drew replicas of the tattoos and stenciled them on this woman. So, wow. Eventually, Frank Jones is arrested on mail fraud charges. And it's like, I can't believe that's all he gets for all this. But I get what are you going to charge him with? He's arrested on mail fraud charges, he's sentenced to five years in prison, and he's ordered to pay back the Bradleys every cent of the money that was paid to him. You know, and how much would that be? Well, over the span of two years, this is how long this investigation went on, two years, the Bradleys paid this disgusting person more than $200,000 in good faith, thinking that he was searching for their daughter. And more important, though, than the money, what an absolute frickin' waste of time. two years. I mean, that's 730 wasted days that they didn't look for Amy, and it's so sick that someone would take advantage of people like this at like their most vulnerable time, but it happens all the time. Side note, Judith, a local carousel woman, woman um, she maintains that she was telling the truth this whole time. Uh though her son who he works at a security firm in Curaçao, he says that his mother was lying she had not seen the bradley or excuse me had not seen Amy, and that she was just taking advantage of the Bradleys who paid her eight thousand dollars for her information um but she was never charged with anything so but hey, guess what then huh? yeah, another lead, okay, so uh this one uh it's not gonna lead to anywhere. But hey, but we get, but we get a lead. So here, let's talk about it. So in 2001, a formal naval officer comes forward and says that he encountered Amy in a brothel in 1999 when he was stationed in Curacao. He said a woman approached him and said, my name is Amy Bradley and I need your help. Okay. So he allegedly told her that there was like a naval ship five minutes from the brothel and, you know, if she needs help, leave and go to the ship. And she's like, no, they won't let me leave. You don't understand. I can't go. And before she could say anything else, two men came over and escorted her away from the officer. Um, ugh, now this, because he was on active duty and not supposed to be in the brothel, he waits more than two years to report what he's seen. Um, and by the time he does, when the FBI goes to, or no, it's, was it the FBI or local either way, (laughs) by the time law enforcement goes to investigate the brothel has been burnt to the ground. So now, whew. Okay. So now the case goes cold for four years. This is the longest time the Bradleys have gone without hearing any credible leads, but then, yeah. Okay. They get a big one. In 2005, the Bradleys receive an email from an anonymous source that contains some photos of a woman who looks just like Amy, and they're being listed on a Caribbean vacation escort website called Affordable Adult Vacations. So you can easily find these photos on Google. It is 100% for sure Amy Bradley. Um, The woman, she's listed on the service as uh, under the name Jazz, and she is scantily clad and like nude in some of the photos um which are blocked out or whatever, if you look online, but it's her, okay, her hair is very long, she's wearing heavy makeup she's older, she'd have been almost thirty at this time, but I mean the it's it's her the nose, the cheeks um the the earrings she had that ear full of earrings, clear as day in this photo uh and it's just so the woman she looks so despondent and clearly unenthusiastic um but yeah ron and iva they took these photos to a forensic detective and he determined that yeah 100 percent these photos are amy he said he would bet his career on it so okay they have this woman on this this prostitution site fbi has all the info they know the the company you know where why can't they just have someone order her and save her well you know it's like for a multitude of reasons one the company, the prostitution place the company, they host locations all over the Caribbean, and and the locations they house these escorts. Okay, prostitution is legal there, so the girls like live on the property. There's brothels, hotels, resorts, old military barracks, um, and the photos of the girls can be uploaded from from anywhere by anyone. And also, the girls travel all the time. They're boat tours and cruises. They're never in one place for long. So first, the FBI has to verify her location. Then, in the chance that you, that you do that, you can't have just one man order Amy up and, and escape. I mean, th- there's armed guards everywhere. Everything's monitored. All the shit that you have to fill out, you know. There's, no, it's, it's not going to happen. So perhaps the FBI was getting, like, a team together to try and go in and save Amy. But if, if they were doing that, while they were doing that, also around this time, Ron and Iva go on the Dr. Phil show. It's a segment about Natalie Holloway, and they're talking about their experience with a missing child. And they share these photos of Amy that were on this website. Um, oh, and so I, did, I wasn't able to actually watch the Dr. Phil show, but I was able to read transcripts. And um, someone who was also on the show by the name of Ty, T-Y, uh, shares on the episode photos and information about a brothel in Curacao called Le Mirage. And it's still open. You can go there today. Um, but more than a brothel, it's a fortress, okay? It covers 10 acres and it's got a 20-foot high wall surrounding it and steel gates. Ty says the girls are monitored constantly. They have no freedom. So this is the kind of place that Amy... It's, and it's old army barracks. It's old military barracks. So this is the kind of place that Amy is being held in, Okay. So now after this segment of the Dr. Phil show airs, Amy's photo disappears off the website and she's lost again. Now real quick before we move on, I need to mention a really great website that I found while I was doing my research. It's called amybradleyismissing.com and it literally has like three times the info than I've like of what I've already given here. Um, but on this website, check it out for yourself. They really go into detail about how like affordable adult vacations work. Uh, works, the, the escort service. Um, also, that's just like one of about 10 other escort services that all have different names but are run by the same company and the same people. They're all connected. So um, on this website, though, this amybradleyismissing.com. There are several photos that are allegedly of a man named Alfred Cotton who used to run many of the boat tours for the escort service. So basically you rent, you buy some girls for, you know, a few days and you party on a boat with them. So this Alfred Cotton guy apparently drove the boat, um, for a lot of these tours. I don't know if he was one of the owners of the business at the time, but he's definitely an owner today, um... Of what eventually the business eventually becomes tropical adult vacations you can Google whatever but just so remember that okay um, Alfred Cotton right driving the boats you know we're almost finished I promise so okay so and this is where it's going to tie in so also in 2005 there is another sighting of Amy but this time it's in Barbados which is uh, 640 miles from Curacao so this woman her name's Judy Marr. And uh, she's on a cruise, the ship dock, she's on vacation with her husband, and she's in Bridgetown, Barbados, and she goes to do some shopping, and she needs to use the restroom. So she goes to this department store bathroom, and she goes into the stall, and right as soon as she gets into the stall, the door opens, and a woman comes in with a bunch of men, and they're, the men are loud, and they're scary, and they're kind of yelling at the woman. So Judy is like hiding in the stall, terrified. She actually climbs up on the toilet, thinking she's gonna get robbed, murdered, whatever. So while these men, they keep saying to this woman, like, "It's my deal. The deal goes down at eleven o'clock." Like he's warning her, she better cooperate, you know. And I'm like, God, what in the what is the deal? Jesus, what is it? Like were they like trading her for somebody or what? You know, is it drugs? What's going on? But some kind of deal. It's his deal, right? So then the guys, they leave the bathroom and they leave the woman, you know, in there. And she's she's kind of crying. She's very upset. And she's just leaning over the sink and she's despondent. So Judy then feels comfortable enough to get out of the stall. So she goes out and she goes to talk to her. And she asks her where she's from. And I'm like, and I've heard, I heard this from Judy's own mouth. Like, so I'm like, it just seems like weird questioning. Like the first thing I would do is probably like ask somebody like, you know, do you do you need help? Like, what? G- give me, you know, something. But no, okay. So, but you know what? Jo- Judy probably she's not into true crime, so maybe she didn't know. So Judy asks her, "Where are you from?" And she says that the woman super super quiet says, "Virginia." And then she asks her, "What's her name?" And she whispers, "Amy." So then Judy replies, "Oh, my daughter's name is Amy." Like which I get, she's trying to you know make her feel more comfortable. But then Amy is like, "Shut your mouth, dude!" Like I'm not supposed to be talking. So she turns and she gets in Judy's face like three times, like really like like shut up. So just then, of course, it's like now I'm busted. Way to go! You could have helped me, but now I'm busted. So the dudes come, r- they're yelling out the door. They come in, Judy fricking runs out the door, which I don't blame her. I would do the same. And the men come in and, and take Amy. And then that's it, you know? I mean, that's like, oh, I hope they didn't beat her, you know, for like breaking the rules or something. So anyhow, nine months after um, Judy has this interaction with Amy, she's reading an article and realizes that 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 it was indeed Amy. The woman in Barbados that she saw was her. So she contacts the Bradleys, they contact the FBI, and Judy works with a sketch artist to create a composite of, you know, what Amy looked like and the men who were with her. And if you have an opportunity, um, so I saw Judy's interview on an episode of Vanished with Beth Holloway that's on um, YouTube right now. So you can watch that yourself. Uh, and if you go to com, if you look at a photo of Alfred Cotton next to the middle photo done by the sketch artist, it is 100, it's gotta be him. It's like looking at like a mirror image. So I feel like this, this Alfred Cotton is definitely not, not involved. I'm not going to say, cause you know, who don't know who's listening, but he might have some answers to, where you know Amy's whereabouts? At least you know fifteen years ago, um he's still around. I found a recent article. He and his wife had been arrested uh, on a, like a technicality uh in twenty sixteen with their prostitution business. I mean, and it is a business because where they're running the business, it's legal. So, you know, maybe you know, Yellow is the answer to the beginning of Amy's story, and Alfred is the answer to the end. I mean, if. And that's the thing I don't understand. Like there's so many layers to this story and there's so many people involved and there's so, there's so many leads and I just, why can't we get to, you know, why can't we get to the core of, you know, why can't we save Amy? Why can't they save her? Um, So anyhow, the, to get back to it, uh, oh, FBI and local authorities, they go to Barbados, and they interview people at the mall, no one knows what they're talking about, they haven't seen Amy, they haven't seen the men. Um, You know, another thing, hey, just a helpful tip when looking out for potential, uh, you know, sex trafficking victims, if you see a lady with a bunch of dudes and she looks like she wants to kill herself, uh, you know, maybe there's a situation going on there. It doesn't, you know, doesn't hurt to ask, but, you know, sadly, sadly, this is really where like where the story ends because to my knowledge there hasn't been another credible lead um in Amy's case since then since 2005 so you know just a little update yellow um he's alive and well he's married with two children he still lives in the caribbean uh he's found god he's a preacher um he had the opportunity or he was offered the opportunity to give his side of the story, um, and be interviewed for that vanished episode, but he declined, but then he did turn around and threatened to sue the show for the way he was portrayed, um, the way he was portrayed on the show. So there's that, but, you know, we could be hopeful that someday he's going to open his mouth and share more about his interaction with Amy that morning she disappeared. But, you know, unfortunately he's, he's moved on and I don't think that, that we're ever going to see that happen. Um, you know, I guess what I did want to close on is, well, there's, there's a couple things still. I think the reason that Amy's case resonates with so many people is because there's been so many legitimate sightings of her. And like, why can't anyone save her? Um, she's She was failed. Her family was failed. They were failed from the minute she disappeared. All the obstacles in her way, all the roadblocks, Um, and then so many people seeing her and every time she saw somebody, did she, you know, did she feel any hope? Did she think like, Hey, like when she talked to that Naval officer, like he's going to tell someone they're going to help me. And, you know, I just think about where she could be now. She's been, she's been missing for more than 23 years now, and she would be 47 years old on May 12th. Um, I think it's a given. We all know, like, there's no argument that she was abducted and sold into sex slavery, you know, human trafficking. Um, But where is she now? Is she alive? Was she too high profile? Did they just say, nope, no more, you know, and kill her? Um, Do they have her recruiting girls now? Or, you know, is she still working as, as a, you know, as a sex slave? Is she... You know, is she running drugs? What kind of, you know, that deal, what what kind of deals is, is she a part of now? And, you know, does she know how, how much people want her to come home? Um, it's just very sad. It's just very sad all around. Um, you know, and I guess here, I guess, you know, we should talk about, like, a call to action, really. You know, when you see pictures of missing people, share them always share them, share them on your social media, share them with your friends, look at the photos, look at these people and look at people, look at things around you. Also, if something doesn't feel right, or you think there might be a situation, say something or call, you know, better to be bothersome and save somebody's life than to let something go. So it just so many times we, we let things go. And you know, if you do uh, have any information or if you ever meet anyone with any information, anyone listening, if you have any information about Amy Bradley, contact your local FBI office or your nearest American embassy um, or consulate. Uh, the Bradleys and the FBI are currently offering more than $300,000 in reward money for information, both leading to Amy's return and and also just for verifying her location. So, you know, just uh, don't give up on I'm missing people. They deserve better than that and you would want someone to do the same for you. So, you know, I think uh I think that's it. If you're still here, if you're still listening, thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening. I know this was long, but this case just really it resonates with me. It's so close to my my heart. You don't know, you know, whether you're a parent or not, like to have have someone in your life that you love to, to be missing and not knowing what's happening to them. Uh, how the hurt, I, I can't imagine you would ever have another moment of joy in your life. You couldn't, I don't even know how you could sleep. Like I, so yeah. Yeah. So just always share, always share, do your best. They deserve it. So with that, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up and, um, yeah. Thanks again for listening. Thank you, Ari, for, for having me on the podcast and uh, much love. Be good to each other and, um, and be good to yourselves. And maybe I'll see you on another episode next time. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.